Welcome to the Pharmacy Residency Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Uh, what I wanted to go over today uh, was something that uh, we don't really talk about much, <clears throat> uh, which is imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome. And uh, I also want to talk about anxiety as well. Uh, but uh, this episode is uh, what I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to explain why you feel the way you do uh, in pharmacy school and then in residency and when during residency. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some AJPE, American Journal of Pharmaceutical Education uh, articles and talk a little bit about uh, AACP, uh, which is different than the accrediting body. So sometimes people get those uh, confused that AACP is a member organization, so you can join that. Faculty will join it. But ACPE, that's the one that says you can be accredited or not, or you can be a pharmacy school or you can't be a pharmacy school and so forth. So this all started with an article that Jackie Boyle uh, and I think Alex Barker, I'm not sure where he went to school. Maybe he did go there. Um, I think they're both from, and here's the actual article, Assessment of Imposter Phenomenon in Student Pharmacists and Faculty at Two Doctor of Pharmacy Programs. And usually what they do is uh, they put the name of the person and their, where they graduated from. So Northeast Ohio Medical University, uh, it's in Rootstown, uh, Ohio. And uh, what they did was they went to two uh, doctor of pharmacy programs and uh, they went to see, okay, well, uh, do you feel like an imposter? And this SIP score, it's a little bit goofy, but uh, basically, they said moderate to frequent, 36 and 44 uh, percent with the students and the faculty. But what we really should be looking at is <clears throat> the data that comes out, which is when you ask these students, where did they actually fall on the admission scale? So what I mean by that is, let's say that you've got 100 people going to a college of pharmacy. Right now, the acceptance rate, or last year, was a little, it was pretty close to 90%. You go back about 10 years ago, it was a little bit over 30%. So moving from 30 to 90% has had a huge change in what happens in the pharmacy school as it relates to this kind of syndrome or phenomenon, and I'll, I'll explain my, my rationale on this. So what they did was they just asked the students, well, how do you feel based on this uh, scale? And um, <clears throat> it's a self-survey instrument and so forth. But what I would be interested in knowing is how does someone, so if you rank those applicants from one to a hundred, like the number one applicant with the best GPA and, and all that stuff, and then the hundredth applicant, how did they feel? So we would think intuitively that the person that has the highest GPA, that has the best scores, would feel the most like they belong there. And number 100 should feel like they don't belong there. They should be the most, have the most feeling as an imposter. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But my guess is that if you're saying that only 36% of them feel that way, that means that people that are in the bottom half, let's, let's pretend that that was you know, the last 36%, and let's say it actually went that way, that still means the top two-thirds feels like they belong there. 
Okay. Whereas, you know, back in admissions 10 years ago, the entire 31 through 100 wouldn't have even been there. Uh, you know, it would only be up to 90. So when you look at these numbers, you're kind of wondering, okay, well, what does someone make them feel like? Uh, they feel like an imposter. And let me tell you why I think this happened and why I think more people are feeling like imposters. And it has a lot to do with that huge jump in the application uh, acceptance percentage. Uh, this is an infographic that Farmcast uses. Uh, and I'm a pre-pharmacy advisor, so I see stuff like this all the time. And in a past episode, I talked about the numbers for somebody in medicine versus somebody uh, in pharmacy. And so in medicine, your undergrad GPA is closer to like a 3.8 and your science GPA is closer to like a 3.6. And so what happens is when you have somebody that has a GPA of 3.3 and 3.17 for science, that means there's a lot more of a range. So if you're talking about the average being at 3.17, that means that you can go up 0.83 to the top to get to 4. And you can go down, oh, I wish we had <laughs> regular numbers. So 3.17 minus 0.83, uh, 2.34. All right. You can go down to 2.34. So the reason why I think you would have more imposter syndrome is you don't have very many 2.34s in medical school. And you don't have many in, in pharmacy school. But the range goes all the way down to 2.34 when the average is at 3.17 and I know about median and average and the differences and all that stuff but what I'm just saying is that there is a much bigger range of actual scores and actual how good they were in school before they even got there and so if you're feeling like an imposter in there it might be because you're sitting next to someone who was you know, getting a 3.83940, and you might be a 2.5 student or a 2.75 student. And I think that when they bring you in and they give you all the white coat all at the same time, there's a feeling of, oh, well, we're all the same. We're all one class, but you're not. You all have different backgrounds and different abilities. And when we talk about those backgrounds and abilities, we don't ever separate that the person that got a 4.0 is going to have a very different time studying than the person that had a 2.5. And that, I think, is the great tragedy that we don't say, okay, well, <clears throat> we're, we'll accept you. That's fine. You know, but uh, we're going to need to do some, and, and I'm going to talk about these tests that a, a college did, and I think it might have been the same college, uh, did in terms of you know, where we're going to struggle and where you're going to struggle. So uh, let me get to the next part and kind of explain that part of it. Uh, this is, okay. Um, that's something else I wanted to talk about. Where's my number one? Here we go. Okay. So let's do that one first, and then we'll talk a little bit about... Um, yeah. All right. So identifying low pharmaceutical calculation performers using an algebra based pretest. And so 
you know, many of us have, have struggled with calculations and, and to some extent we're like, oh gosh, you know, this is, this is a little bit tough. And what they found was that the median pretest score was 15 out of 18 possible points with scores ranging from 5 to 18. After controlling for age, gender, ACT scores, high school grade point average, scores on the algebra-based word problem pretest were associated with performance in pharmaceutical calculations assessments. So what it's saying is, is that how you did before as someone who studies affected you, but what should really pop out is that the range was from 5 to 18. And that is a huge range. That means that there are some students with huge math deficits coming in. You say, okay, well, I mean, does a school not require calculus? What's going on? So I went and I looked. And it's not the same school that Jackie Boyles goes to, though they're both in Ohio. Uh, this is Ohio Northern versus Neomed, which is uh, the other one. Let me make sure I get the school right because it's a little bit of a mouthful. Northeast Ohio Medical University is different than Northern Ohio. Okay, Ohio Northern. So to get into Ohio Northern, you need three credits of physics, three credits of calculus, three credits of statistics. How can you get through those three classes and get a five on an algebra test? Okay, that just is boggling my mind. And what it's saying is, is that, well, these classes, they may have taken it a long time ago, but even so, I just feel like to even pass these classes, that shouldn't have been so hard. So my argument that I'm gonna kind of start going with is, does this pre-pharmacy coursework make sense anymore? You know, does it make sense to require physics? And most colleges have said no. Uh, does it make sense to do the PCAT? Now, 75 colleges of, percent of colleges have said no. Most of the PCAT is gone, and it pains me that some advertise no PCAT required when it's kind of a given. Um, but this school requires anatomy and physiology or biochemistry, and you can take that in your first year of school. But what I want you to see is that this is so heavily math and science that it really loses a lot of the liberal arts. And I get it. You know, um, if you didn't uh, go to Ohio Northern for undergrad, you have to take comp and psych and communications and humanities. But this is kind of an afterthought. Um, and I'm going to kind of argue that the humanities need to come back. And, and this is um, especially as we're, we're getting into our profession where uh, we're much less technicians. That is, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to train you to do this thing. Uh, the humanities teach you how to solve any problems. Okay. So let's talk about admissions and what, you know, when we look at the, uh, you know, college majors that came in. The reason, the reason that you probably feel an affinity for your classmates is that you all were probably in the same major. Uh, biology, pharmacy, chemistry, biochemistry, and pharmaceutical sciences. And there's a lot of talk about inclusion and all of that. And there was a, an article that um, medical school and pharmacy schools are more inclusive uh, than uh, dental schools with regards to certain uh, uh, ethnic groups and things like that. But what I want to talk about is 
this kind of homogeneity is not good when it comes to um, having a diverse and we always talk about socioeconomic opportunities and and we talk about um, race here and you can see that the the racial makeup of pharmacy students but really the biggest tragedy is that it's a bunch of most pharmacy students are biology majors or chemistry majors or biochem majors and someone like me who ended up with an english major um, that's kind of out of that group but what i would say is and as uh, the pharmacy schools are losing another oh if you make the average tuition at around thirty thousand dollars and they're going to lose another 1200 students this year um, probably in in uh in applications uh so in applicants uh so that's about 36 million dollars uh, that the schools are gonna gonna lose this year and it doesn't need to happen because really our profession is a lot of different things and so why can't we take a management student from a business school who would be interested in managing a pharmacy or being an administrator at a hospital? Why can't we take somebody that uh, is an English major and wants to write or a political science major that wants to be a senator <clears throat> or a representative? And this homogeneity in college majors happens because of the pre-requirements. And I'm not picking on Ohio Northern. This is common to everything. But look at this. This is so exclusionary. How many students really take organic chemistry? And how many students really take organic chemistry and calculus and biology and anatomy and biochem and physics and all this stuff? And what we're saying is that, I'm sorry, if your training is in the humanities and the liberal arts, we're not interested. Well, now that your numbers are so low, I would hope that you would start thinking, well, maybe maybe we should be the ones teaching chemistry. Maybe instead of worrying about all of this, what we're going to exclude when we bring somebody in, maybe we should worry about including everybody. And this is a big deal when it comes to um, me as a community college professor, because I have, you know, the AA by definition is an associate of arts. It's a student can't, they have to get an AS, an associate of science, but there's so many requirements for science in terms of its percentage versus the humanities that it just completely obliterates it. The fact that you only need comp one doesn't work because comp one isn't rhetoric. It isn't logos, pathos, ethos. That's comp two. Psych and sociology to only need three credits. Like the sociology part is huge in terms of understanding uh, the patients and their, where they're coming from and the psychology is huge where it comes to uh, many of the actual psych, if you're talking about VAs and things like that especially. Uh, and then communications and speech, that's all we do now is talk to people. So I just feel like this is always at the bottom and this actually needs to be at the top. All right, well, let me get off my stoop there, but let me talk about medical schools. If you want to go to medical school, it's a lot better to be an English major or a music major or a history major. Because if you look at the percentages, sure, physical sciences do best, chemistry, but humanities are behind them at 44%. So you would think, oh, well, somebody who's a chemistry major has a much better chance of getting into medical school. False. They have a 4% better chance. Well, somebody with a biology major has a really good chance. False. 
Biology majors have one of the worst chances at 36%, okay? And then if you're in nursing or pharmacy, you also have one of the worst chances at around 35% uh, versus the absolute worth, which is whatever other is. But I'm just saying that the humanities, English, history, those types of things, looking at problems that people have solved before and how they did it uh, is huge. Okay. All right. So let's go to the NAPLEX. All right. Well, how would an English major do? Well, the summary of this NAPLEX article, and it was Systematic Review of Predictors of Success. So it looked through all the NAPLEX articles, I think, and they went through 30 different variables. And they said cumulative pharmacy school GPA and the now defunct PCOA were predictors of NAPLEX success. The effects of pre-admission student characteristics were not consistently correlated or predictive. That's basically saying it, it doesn't matter what your major was. It doesn't matter what you took before. It doesn't matter how you did before. It just matters that you were able to do well in pharmacy school, that you were able to you know, work with the other students and, and get through the courses. That's it. I mean, and, and that just seems like uh, so clear that we should be just getting rid of organic, getting rid of uh, inorganic as these barriers as getting into pharmacy school, because what we are is communicators now. You know, that whole, you know, uh, thing with biochem and, and all that stuff, a lot of that you know, we just don't use. It's we, we, we're talking to people, we're convincing people, physicians and patients, so other prescribers. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the new president of AACP, Stuart Haynes. Uh, I actually know him. He was in Maryland when I was there. He's a really smart guy and a really neat guy. And what I love is he talks about the Stoics, uh, which is uh, in Epictetus and, and all that, and Cicero. And this is what I did in some of my PhD work with uh, rhetoric and professional communication. But he's basically saying that, you know, by knowing these liberal arts, we can understand the problem we have and start looking at some of the solutions. Okay. Um, let's get back to this whole idea of uh, anxiety and um, I just, the, the word, uh, the, the imposter phenomenon, I just, I don't want to say I don't believe in it. I do want to say that it happens for a reason, and once you understand the reason, it, it's less so. So when they did this study of pharmacy students, they found that about 50% okay, had general anxiety, okay, with an equal distribution among high clinical and low clinical general anxiety groups. So what we're saying is, is that your classmates are anxious too, they're just not talking about it. Okay, so when you feel this, you know, feel that you're an imposter, well, other people are anxious about things. They're worried about their loans. They're worried about, you know, classes and all those things. But they're not really telling you that. But just to know that, you know, it's not that you're an imposter. It's that no one's really talking about it. Okay. Uh, I love this other article, Wicked Problems in Pharmacy Education. And I don't know if this person is from, well, they're from Oklahoma. I was thinking Boston, like we got wicked problems, you know, something like that. Uh, but what she was actually referring to was a book um, that talks about complex problems. So there are simple problems like, okay, the patient uh, is on one medication and we need to switch to another one. 
where you can have complex problems like, okay, the patient was on one medication that's causing this problem. And then if they, if we change that medication, then it causes this other problem. And that these other problems are very diffuse, which the humanities are very good at. But if, it's just a really uh, neat book that she talks about. I won't be able to read it because it's not audiobook yet. But once it goes to audiobook, I would love to you know, listen to Creating Wicked Students. But this is talking about designing courses for a complex world and really uh, understanding rather than it, it's talking about solving gray area problems. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the NAPLEX too. So here's my English major thing. Um, they just finished their interim uh, meeting yesterday, I think, uh, where they, uh, this is AACP, I mean, uh, they have one in the middle of the year and then they have one uh, big one, uh, different one there, I think it was in San Diego or something like that. And let's talk about the NAPLEX. So the NAPLEX, if we went from 30% admittance to 90% admittance, you would expect that the NAPLEX scores would have gone down. And they did have a bump like a couple years ago, it was like three or four or five years ago that there was just this real dip. And then uh, a lot of schools did something about it. Uh, Jill Augustine uh, at Mercer uh, talked about what Mercer did over the last three years. And uh, you wanna see how they did. You kind of go to the sheet and the new downplex scores aren't gonna be out till early March. But um, Mercer was at 76%. And you say, okay, well, that's like a C, right? No, 76% is like the lowest quartile. So that's kind of the tricky thing about the NAPLEX scores. Like a 91 is like uh, the top 25 and like an 89 is like top 50. So this is really, really low uh, for pharmacy school. And they did something about it. Went to 93 and 91. Uh, and so they moved themselves uh, way up there. And so, again, my whole point with this NAPLEX thing is that, well, if you're accepting people from 30% to 90% and they're still scoring 88% on the NAPLEX, well, this group would have been admitted at 81%. So 81% of this class was admitted to pharmacy school. And if they're still passing at 88%, then what they're doing before pharmacy school probably doesn't matter near as much. Okay. All right. Uh, another one that was kind of uh, interesting was, uh, I love this term, addressing curricular hoarding to enhance access and affordability of a PharmD. And I'm not sure exactly what they mean in terms of affordability. It's not like if they change the classes in some way, it's cheaper. Uh, but what they're, what curricular hoarding is, uh, is think of the, the show hoarders where, you know, they just keep keeping things instead of they, instead of getting rid of them. Well, what happens is, is colleges will add classes, but they won't go one for one. Like, okay, we added a class, we need to get rid of a class. You know, the person teaching that class is like, what are you talking about? You're not gonna get rid of my class. Now, well, we've got this updated class. This class is the new class. Your class is the old class. Your class is gone. My class is new. Uh, and, and it doesn't work that way. So uh, it's basically the de-prescribing that needs to be done. <laughs> And uh, there's a whole article about it, uh, which is, I think it was a review article, but Curricular Hoarding by Frank Romanelli. Uh, and uh, he's at Kentucky. And I just thought it was really, really cool uh, that, that they would uh, talk about that. And he did that back in January of 20. Um, another one I thought was kind of neat. It's like, you know, students are always saying, like, oh, I'd like to be a pharmacy professor. And they never, never actually talk about how much they make. Um, it's maybe a little more than you thought or maybe a little less. Let me show you. 
the if you if you're a dean, you should be at a quarter of a million or more. Though I think they should get more than that. Um, if you're an associate dean, uh, it's about 180, and then an assistant dean is about 140. So a professor, full professor, uh, would make about as much as an associate dean. Then you get to associate professor about 125, and then assistant professor uh, right around uh, 115. And then instructors around 90, and then lecturers uh, about 100. So at a community college, um, we don't have full professorships and these kinds of uh, hierarchies, uh, but um, I'm just right around where that instructor lecturer is. But my quality of life is so good uh, that I couldn't imagine uh, doing anything else. I really hope I retire there. It's just an, an amazing, an amazing uh, opportunity. And um, yeah, so I, I, I just love what I do. Yeah. All right. So anyway, what I wanted to kind of uh, kind of go back to this very beginning thing, the imposter phenomenon is happening because we have students that have two fives and we have students that have four O's. And the students that have those two fives have never felt good about themselves academically. But the reality is that the two fives and the four O's are still going to make it to the finish line and they're still going to pass the NAPLEX. Now, are they going to get residencies? That I can't make an extrapolation of. But if they did poorly in grades below and they might do still do poorly in grades in pharmacy school, and then they might not, you know, on the rubric qualify as well as, as somebody who has a higher GPA and has, you know, maybe some better strategies uh, for studying and things like that. Uh, but, you know, this whole imposter syndrome thing, uh, let, let's think as a last kind of thought about residents. So those new residents that come in July, they're going to feel imposter syndrome because the RPDs just had somebody that had been through there in a year. And that person, man, they were working on their own. They were getting all this stuff done. Everything's working great. And now they've got you and you're new and you don't even know how to use the HR. And they don't even know if they're going to pass the NAPLEX, much less the MPJE or good gracious, the CPJE. And so during those first couple of months, there will definitely be some imposter syndrome. And that makes sense because there's a comparison to what was there, the person that had been there for a year, and you. But over time, you're going to start gradually getting better and better and better. And what's happening in pharmacy schools is the same as what happens in uh, honors programs. Uh, there was this story, true or not, I don't know, where a teacher mistook this one class as the honors class because it was written on the paper, oh, this is an honors class, and so treated the students like honors students, and they all performed really well. And it was the students didn't realize that the instructor had no idea that they weren't honor students, but their expectations were raised and it all worked out. And so the same thing is true. You're going to rise up to those students that are you're alongside. And so my my hope for Stuart T. Haynes, uh, president, is that he implores the pharmacy schools to uh, look at the pre-admission requirements and instead of just worrying about getting rid of the PCAT, well, just get rid of the other stuff. Just say, okay, well, if you can finish two years of college at a certain level, you probably would do okay. We'd just give you some classes in chemistry and some classes in biochem and anatomy and physiology, and we'll let you finish them in your first year. 
or something like that. So I think there needs to be a pathway that our, you know, biology, chemistry, biological chemistry sciences first. And then I think there needs to be a pathway for humanities and management and political science and those that are going to be just as valuable uh, that maybe their, their primary thing isn't science, uh, but they can certainly contribute to the profession. All right. So again, if you need help with your uh, letter of intent as you go into phase two, residency.teachable.com or just email me, Tony the pharmacist at gmail.com.